This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of Press One for Nick. Your host, Nick Limsdahl, is the Director of Contact Center Solutions at VDS. Through conversations with customer service and customer experience leaders, Nick and his guests exchange insightful stories, best practices, and invaluable lessons they have learned along the way. My guest this week is Melina Palmer. Melina is the founder and CEO of The Brainy Business, which provides behavioral economics consulting to businesses all sizes across the world. Her podcast, The Brainy Business, has downloads in over 160 countries. What? Her first book, What Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, launches May 2021. Welcome, Melina. Thank you so much for having me. And it's actually, it's over 170 countries now with downloads. So making our way through those ranks. (laughs) That's awesome. You should have like a podcast passport of like all of the pages that are stamped. Yeah. That would be amazing. There should be a page for that. You'll be very full now, which is great. Lots of countries I haven't physically made it to yet, but someday. Someday. They'll all listen and they want you to come speak. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> well, I start off every single podcast with uh, the question that is, what's one thing that people might not know about you? I would say would be, and I've talked about this on my own show, so if anybody mm-hmm. already knows me here, but uh, so I actually for a very long time, there was no question I was going to go to school for uh, musical theater. And I used to compete singing opera in school and was the only vocalist in my high school that went to state. And I've sung the national anthem at a Seattle Mariners game. Wow. I was not competitive at all. Instantly. <laughs> so that is, that is impressive. That takes a lot of ta- talent, time, and uh, yeah, I, I would be, I'd probably uh, sweat pretty profusely if I tried to get up there and sing the national anthem. Yeah, I have done a lot of anthems over the years now. And that one at the Mariners, it was very much like, look down at home plate. Because if I look up and see my <laughs> face, you know, 60 feet high, you know, like yeah. tall, giant would mess up for sure. But that is me. Oh my gosh, that's me. Keep giant. focus. focus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the book, uh, what your customer wants and can't tell you. Who's this book created for? This book is created for anyone in business that is responsible for or has involvement in brands and brand creation and identity, which for me identify beyond, it's more than just the marketing department. Uh, You also have, of course, entrepreneurs or small businesses. Uh, You're wearing so many hats. You know, there's a lot of making sure that your business is going to be resonating well with anyone that you interact with. And um, in other areas of a company as well, there's information about pricing strategy and things like that. It's just all about making it easier to communicate with the brain of the customer and what they're actually going to do, you know, understanding that instead of what we think they should, which is often, most often wrong. (laughs) So, yeah. It is absolutely most often wrong. So tell me about this old adage that perception is reality. Yeah. So the perception being reality is one of those things where, you know, we can all say anything we want about our brands. You know, I want to be 
this. I want to be that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can strive for in a boardroom, you know, values, statements, and things like that. But the actual experience that people have with you is really what your brand is, regardless of what you want it to be. And so you kind of have to own that. And the quote that I use in the book, which is one of my favorites, is from Peter Steidel. And it says, a brand is a memory. And so understanding that the way that people interact with your business, what they think about you, is about all those past engagements and interactions, and it shapes that relationship over time. And if you were to think about, you know, one of your favorite brands, there are probably some standards that come to mind, Apple, Disney, Amazon, but what actually makes them your favorite? How did they get there? What's that built on? And you think about other relationships that you have with people. You know, often we talk about in selling that you don't want want to be proposing on the first date, right? <laughs> uh, sort of a, a thing we've heard before. And, you know, brands you could. Are the it same. would just be really awkward. <laughs> right. I get a lot of those LinkedIn connections that are like that <laughs> uh, and beyond. Yeah. I mean, just crazy. But when you um, think about it, the first date, you're very focused on every little thing to see if someone's going to be the hero or the zero, right? And they make slurp their soup in a weird way and you go, <laughs> you're out, right? They could have been a 10 in every other category, but they did that one weird thing. Whereas like, you know, today, if my husband was to slurp some soup, I'm not like, we're out, right? <laughs> it doesn't weigh in the same way because I've already, he's established as my favorite person. And it's the same with brands and it's built on that history. And so understanding how the brain engages in that way is really important for brands. Yeah. I mean, going back to your husband, if he's, if he slurps soup, you'd probably just look at him and be like, really? But it <laughs> wouldn't, you wouldn't say, let's get divorced tomorrow because right. he slips. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yes. No, I would not. <laughs> so we're good. <laughs> <laughs> you are safe, husband, as of today. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> so typically companies try to do what is best for the company or for the customer. But is that what the customer's brain remembers? It can be. I, you know, I think there's the it depends answer that can come up on a lot of these. I'm guessing you're thinking a little bit about the peak end rule here yeah. in which when we think about any interaction, the brain is, there's so much that could be going on if you're trying to evaluate every single moment. And there are so many dimensions to look at. So if you think about going out to eat um, and somebody, the, often the waiter or someone will say, oh, how was everything? And you say, oh, it was fine or it was great. Thanks. But you didn't really think too hard about that. And even if you were to sit down and really want to evaluate the process, there are so many aspects of wait time and ambiance and temperature of the food and the flavor and delay of how long it took to get to you and the menu and all these things, even if you were to consciously try to think about it, that you can't really grasp. And it's the same with any of our businesses. So what our brains do is they only focus on two points to help determine whether this was good or bad. And it's the peak and the end. And the peak can either be positive or negative. So if you have something really bad happen, then that 
is you don't want to end on that. So we may get, as far as like a tip for businesses, you have that moment, maybe someone calls in and says, I can't believe this happened, or you get a bad review on Amazon or Yelp or something. And you think, well, like, I guess that's it. They're done. They they said they're mad. And then you're just going to leave it. <laughs> it's the worst thing that you can do. Yeah. <laughs> and so actually extending that experience and trying to get it just even a little bit better so that the end is not at that negative peak is going to improve the overall experience that someone has with you and how they think about your brand overall. Whereas if you're looking at, you know, best, if you have positive peaks, you can end on that crescendo, that biggest part of the fireworks display and things like that. And what's nice for customer professionals, you know, if you're building out a plan and it may feel if you're looking at an experience journey and you think, oh my gosh, there are all these points and all these opportunities and where do we even start? And you get kind of overwhelmed with that idea. And if you just say, you know, let's look and make sure we don't have any negative peaks that are causing a problem. We need to clear those out of the way. And once that's done, what are the best things that we can be doing to add in a few positive peaks? How can we make sure things end on a positive note? And you just have to do two things, right? Just one great peak and then, you know, looking at what the last thing is that's happened and know that you can extend that. The The customer doesn't get to say the end point. You can help have some additional engagement to have those experiences be more positive. Yeah. Shep Hyken, the customer service legend, uh, says that F or fine is the F bomb of customer service. Yeah. He's like, don't <laughs> ever, ever have it be fine. It, right. Fine is, is not satisfactory. It's not something that you want to achieve toward. So I, I love the, the fact that you shouldn't be fine. You should be more than fine. You should be customer obsessed. So yeah. how do you take that, right? How do you shift the business to be more customer obsessed? Yeah, which, and I talk a little bit about how Netflix has done that. They they focused on customer obsession. And there's a chapter in the book about surprise and delight and looking at one of the biggest mistakes that businesses make when you think about you want to drive additional loyalty and you want to be you know, delighting people or whatever that is. And you go to see, you know, how are we doing? And you do a customer satisfaction survey. The problem is that satisfied can never be delight. There's no version of I'm so satisfied that I'm delighted. You know, if someone says, hey, how was your experience with the bank today? Were you delight? Were you satisfied with that? You say, yeah, sure. Fine. It was fine. But if somebody says, were you delighted when you came into the bank today? You go, hmm, delighted. I, I don't know. Of which, if that's the answer, then no, they weren't. <laughs> uh, but anytime you have an expectation, you can only get to satisfaction. So you need that surprise to be able to get delight. And customers, you know, time and again, all sorts of industries have proven to be more loyal and much more profitable for a business when you have that delight factor and there are tips you know, in the book and that understanding of how the brain is working, how you can apply those concepts in a way that doesn't have to be breaking the bank or uh, get, you know, giving away prizes to everybody. One good thing is if you're, you can't expect that you're going to get a gift because then 
you know, we have the problem again of that expectation. So if you're only giving out a few great prizes, then you end up getting those delightful experiences. People are more likely to share on social media and things like that. And it doesn't have to be that you're sending out gifts to every single customer. Yeah. So you don't need to customer satisfaction. If somebody says, are you satisfied? That's almost like, Hey, was the service good ish? Yeah. Yeah. Did we not totally mess up? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Exactly. Yeah. The one other thing that I think in customer satisfaction score is around the why, like, why did you give me a five or a four or a six for that matter? And how can we improve? A lot of organizations just take that and say, okay, we're a six and it wasn't bad. It was goodish. So we're good with goodish. And I think the keeping that level of, of satisfaction internally is kind of the worst thing possible. You want to strive for success and ask so you can actually do something about it. When you ask that why, you can actually do and have an actionable outcome. Yeah. And, and knowing that that's a different aspect of, um, so what people think they want is not always what they want. That's why, you know, for the book being what your customer wants and can't tell you. So it is good to ask those whys. If there is something that is that can help you identify, especially some of those negative peaks I was talking about, where you're looking at the peak end rule, where they say, you know, man, it took a long time to, like I was waiting for a long time and no one acknowledged me or uh, whatever that is. They There might be something that they think was the problem. And it's important to know and hear that and go about, you know, hearing what your competition's doing as you're building out a plan. But knowing that people never would have asked for iPods and even when there were focus groups and people, you know, Steve Jobs asking, would you want this? People said, I, there's no reason I would want that. And no one would have said they would have paid $4 for a latte. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> Starbucks proved that wrong. And it's obviously much more than that now, <laughs> depending on which kind and size you're getting. And so often people don't really know what they want. But understanding the science of behavioral economics and what's actually happening in the brain, which is what I teach in the book, gives you those skills to be able to start giving people things they don't even know to ask for. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the buying process as a customer, I feel sometimes like I'm just getting bombarded with content and saying, Hey, look how cool we are. And they open up their, their black leather jacket and they're saying, which watch do you want? You're like, (laughs) I don't even want to watch. I just want a phone that tells time. And so how does that work? How does the, as a customer, what drives that buying behavior? Ooh, lots and lots of things. (laughs) And the, again, so the, just if it's helpful to talk a little bit about my background in behavioral economics, which I wouldn't assume that people know exactly what that means, uh, but it is the psychology of why people buy. And there are many disciplines within this field of behavioral science, behavioral economics, but the brain is, doesn't operate the way again, that we think it should. That's where I like to say, you know, should is a four letter word here at the brainy business. So, um, and it's something that businesses do all the time. And so if you think about what's actually happening in the brain, you know, what does your brain do? Anything you can think about when you can consciously think about it is that conscious brain processing, anything you can retrieve. Uh, And we like to think that we do most of our work uh, or at least a decent amount with our conscious brain that we have going on. 
in reality, 99% of what anyone is doing at any given time on any day, all our decisions are made subconsciously using simple rules of thumb to be able to get us through the day and saying, you know, I got a rule for that. I know how to do this. And those rules do a good job for us most of the time, but sometimes they get applied in ways that maybe aren't working uh, to the exact benefit that we may want. But understanding that as a business in the way that you communicate, you can have a very slight shift in the way that you present a message, in the way that it's framed, uh, the way that you prime somebody for what's going to be coming next to help make that buying experience easier for someone when you're working with those rules of the subconscious instead of just trying to wait force someone into that logical processing, uh, which it just doesn't work anywhere near as well. And so, you know, one thing that humans are very influenced by is numbers. And so we can set an anchor and it will make a difference in the decision that someone makes. So if you have cans of soup or yogurt or anything else in the grocery store that is at 10 for $10, people will buy more than if they're listed at $1 each. It's the same. Mm. <laughs> Doesn't uh, have to make a difference, but it absolutely does. And it's, you know, people buy double or, or even more than that when there's that shift in the phrasing. And this is also, if you put a limit on something, so you would say there was a study that was done with those cans of soup again, where they had, you know, a 10 cent discount, I think. And that you said, you know, 10 cents off soup, unlimited. And then there was 10 cents off uh, limit 12. And again, people bought more than double when there was a limit of 12 than when it was unlimited because of that anchoring effect of what happens within the brain. So understanding that shifts, you know, what we want shifts based on the context of how information is presented to us. Okay. So then as a consumer, how do we acknowledge that we're being tricked with our subconscious mind and how do we do something about that? So I don't like to use the word tricked or <laughs> manipulation or things like that. I definitely approach behavioral economics in a way of helping people to make decisions and understanding what happens there and using this information responsibly on the side of branding. That being said, when you are a customer, knowing that your brain gets overwhelmed very, very, very easily. And then you are more likely to use those rules of thumb to make a decision. So the simplest thing that you can do is some research in advance and know what you need, have a list and actually like a written list, whether it's on your phone or whatever, uh, that you take with you when you go to the store and buy based on that. So if you know that you're buying for the week and you need three cans of soup, then you just buy three cans of soup, right? And, and then you're good to go. And if there happens to be a, you know, buy four, get one free or something, you say, well, like I can't, I'm okay with getting some for next week because of whatever that is, you know, but being able to have a plan and knowing what you need will make it so that you aren't relying on that subconscious to say, ooh, that's shiny, I want that thing, because <laughs> our brains are always doing that. So understanding those rules uh, can make a difference if you have a plan.
In a competitive market, does your customer service stand out from the crowd? One way to offer a better experience is by moving your contact center to the cloud. But with so many options to choose from, how do you know which solution is the best for both your business and your customers? That's where VDS comes in and guides you to the best solution. They understand your clients' pain points, business outcomes, and goals. Then VDS designs, implements, supports, and provides 24-7 managed services. From start to finish, VDS is committed to finding the best solutions for your clients' needs. To learn more, go to www.govds.com or find a link in the show notes. Yeah, every time I, I check out at the grocery, there's that snicker bar that just keeps staring at me. And I'm like, <laughs> nope, I can't, I can't do it. But yeah. I see you. Yeah, I, I, I call my horse blinders. Like, I just need to throw my horse blinders on and run as fast as I can in that one direction. Right. Well, I do a lot of work with um, you know brands like that. And knowing that in the pandemic, you have an issue where if people aren't in the store, and you're ordering things online, what does that mean for companies when you are the add-on item? So where even to go with a simple of, you know, having peanut butter and jelly being near the bread or where you have the um, refrigerated cookie dough near the milk, those associations in the brain make a difference of somebody saying, oh, I want that. And actually as a consumer, if you were like, oh, that'd be great. I'd love to make cookies for the kids this weekend or whatever that is. It's not a, a bad thing. Uh, and often you might get home and go, oh man, I forgot, totally forgot to order jelly because I didn't see it when I was there in the store. And so when you lose that, how do brands and stores make it so that's still a great buying experience for people? They can get what it is that they're looking for. And, you know, even before switching to having phones where people are able to look at the, you get in the line and then you're scrolling through Instagram while you're waiting for your turn, instead of just sort of looking around and seeing the headlines on the magazines and wanting to pick up a pack of gum or whatever it is. Yeah. And so that same experience is very different when we're able to distract ourselves with our phones that, you know, people get less of those impulse sort of buys. Do you think that, let's stay on the grocery store thought process for a minute. Do you think if somebody's on Instagram and they can see their, if they're connected to the Wi-Fi at the grocery store, that they notice that, hey, they're already there. Let me see if I can throw an, up a peanut butter ad real quick to see if they want to spend and uh, save 50 cents instead of going through the, the normal process. Absolutely. You know, companies have looked at and been using that sort of geo-targeting uh, process for marketing uh, for years. And that right in the moment piece can make a difference. And so looking as technology advances, and I'm sure, you know, that I know for years, there's been conversation about the cart that like, auto scans as you drop things in. And so you don't even have to check out and something. So it might be if you drop in bread and peanut butter, that maybe there's something that pops up on your phone or right on the cart, it says, we noticed you didn't like you got peanut butter and bread and didn't buy any jelly. Was that intentional? Or did you forget? Here's a coupon if you want to go grab some. Uh, that could be something that is a great experience. And if you know, my 
I don't like jelly or I have plenty at home, then I can still ignore it. That's one of the things about behavioral economics is we look at nudges. So we're only making it easy for someone to make a choice, but you don't force them into doing anything. That's where you're not having the trick or manipulation factor. And so if you said like, you can only buy peanut butter if you also buy jelly, that's not a great (laughs) uh, situation for any consumer, but encouraging or making it easy to get jelly if you need it is a beneficial experience that could be nudging a behavior. Yeah. So going back to your book, you talk about the power of questions. And I love that. I love the questions that you ask because the more questions you ask and the better questions you ask, the more information you get back. But how do you go about leveraging the power of questions? Well, I love questions. They're one of my very favorite things. And I teach a lot uh, with my students as well as with clients, uh, this process of question storming instead of brainstorming. And I talk, I touch on it in the book. But when you look at a good question and the biggest problem that businesses make when they look to apply any sort of whether it's behavioral economics concepts or you're just working on a project is you are working on the wrong problem. And I like to say it's really easy to find the right answer to the wrong question and a very slight change in phrasing or the way that you look at a problem can lead you down a very, very different path. And so being able to take the time investing in making sure you're answering the right question for people is just so valuable and a thing that most people miss. And so taking that time is really, really important and identifying again that the thing you're looking to solve is what you should be, in fact, looking to solve. I like the the thought process of the storm of questions question storming. I just yes. think of this big old tornado going around of, of questions. But you talked about it's not necessarily what you say, but how you say it. Mm-hmm. And you say that in the book too. And, and that's kind of really piqued my interest. I want to hear more about what do you mean by that? Is it is it the tone or is it something else? Uh, it's, it, it is the tone and it can also be the phrasing. And so that is a concept called framing, which I know I touched on a little bit a couple minutes mm-hmm. ago. But if you were to look at, let's say, we'll go back to the grocery store. It's full of examples for these and say, you know, listener, you're going in, you're into the store, you, you're making spaghetti tonight and you need to get some ground beef and you go and you look and there are two stacks and one is labeled as 90% fat free and the stack next to it is labeled as 10% fat which one do you want? Even just in that like initial gut reaction, you know, logically now, you know, that they're the same, but it feels very different in the way that your brain hears it. And we say like, I haven't been able to get to the gym in like a year, like where's 10% fat going. Whereas (laughs) 90% fat free, you think, Oh, I'm making such a great choice for myself and my family. How smart am I? And that is a framing thing. You're saying exactly the same thing, but how you present that information makes a very big difference. There can be aspects with uh, tone and phrasing and things if you're doing presentations and whatnot as well. Uh, But even 
I have a client um, that I was working on a project for a financial institution a few years back, and they had a new checking account, rewards checking, they were super excited about, and they wanted my insight on the headline and, and stuff that they were going to be using. But they were pretty sure that they'd be good to go with what they were going to have on all their billboards and ads and everything, which says 1.26% APY on up to $25,000 in balances. Ta-da. Like, <laughs> that's a great billboard, right? <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, I know. It's like, so let's not do that. <laughs> that's not a great approach. Yeah. Um, and that even for people that understand that math, that work in that space, it just doesn't mean all that much. And so instead I had them reframe the way that they were presenting that out into the world and had it instead be a question that says, did your checking account pay you $315 last year? It's very easy to say, no, it did not. And then you want to learn a little bit more. It creates some curiosity. Of course, 315 is the 1.26 times 25,000. But our brains are lazy. They don't do that type of calculation very quickly. And maybe it gets put on a I'll do that later shelf. People should be able to do that math if they care enough about it, but they won't and they don't. And so if you ask it in a different way, it will trigger their engagement in a different way. And that financial institution ended up having a 60% growth month over month in checking account openings when we made that change with the exact same buy that they were already planning. So that reframe can make a huge difference. And it doesn't, again, have to cost more than what you were already planning to do if you just put some thoughtfulness into how you're going to address that. And again, it's like, why are we talking about this? What's the point? Just saying people want rewards. So like, we got to give them rewards. Ta-da! But that's the wrong thing. Like, how do we get people to... Uh, care about this rate or whatever it is. That's the wrong question. You know, instead you want to be asking, looking at it from a different angle and it can get you to a different place. I love that. From what I got out of that conversation was curiosity killed the cat, but not the conversion of the checking account. <laughs> I, I appreciate. I have a, so curiosity killed the cat is in the book, but it says, you know, curiosity doesn't kill cats. Did you know and I know you saw the book, of course, in advance, but did you know before that, that there was, there's more to that phrasing? No, I did not. <laughs> so it's curiosity killed the cat. Satisfaction brought it back, I believe is what it wow. is. And so you got to do something <laughs> with that. Uh, and so you, it's good to be curious. It's good to ask those questions and have some thoughtfulness, uh, and you can come back around. It's not, it shouldn't just be about the perils of asking, which is what we've all been taught in school. You know, we were talking about having young kids at the beginning. We're, we are born questioners. We're really good at this as children. And, you know, we've got some under fives that we can send out, I think, to the world if anybody mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> doesn't believe that or has forgotten. And in schooling and things, we're trained to not ask as many questions but your brain is naturally able to do that and you can retrain it to start asking questions now to be able to uh, make a difference in your own life and work. I 100% agree. So I apologize, but I have one more question about the book. Why should people stop apologizing? <laughs> 
Well, plenty of reasons, <laughs> but you know, confidence is really important when it comes to selling things. I do a lot of work with entrepreneurs and small businesses. And when you're pricing your own stuff, you tend to think about all, you get so focused in on all the back end things and people are going to have questions about or feel bad about. And, you know, if you go in and say, well, it's, you know, it's $5,000. I know that might be a lot, but, you know, we've had to raise our prices recently, blah, 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 blah. You are priming someone and setting them up to think that they should either ask for a discount or that it's expensive because you basically told them that it is. And so if you have this, I can't raise my prices because every time I've tried, no one will pay it. But you might, you're probably offering a discount before people even ask. And you're presenting that in a way that's making people think it's not worth paying for. Whereas instead you say, you know, we have all sorts of options. We have a $10,000 package. Uh, we also have one for $5,000. What sounds like the best fit for you? And then you just wait. <laughs> and then just pause in silence. Right. And, you know, you're okay with, you're not going to be a fit for everybody. Might be too expensive for someone and that's okay. But, you know, own that and have the confidence. I like to say it that, you know, just like dogs can smell fear, you know, customers can smell that lack of confidence and they're ready to jump and ask for, uh, you know, a discount or, or just feel off. And they can't even, again, in the, what your customer wants and can't tell you, they can't say, you know, the way you said it was the problem. I was, I was going in ready to pay. I expect it to be 7,500 and it was only 5,000 or whatever. They don't really know what's wrong, but something's wrong. That's that like gut gut feeling that's your subconscious saying it's off right <laughs> so understanding yourself using tricks from the book and th not tricks but like rules i guess understanding what's happening in the brain for your own self hey listeners can you think of one person who would benefit from the information you learned today if so please consider sharing this episode with them and last if you would like to receive all the quotes and book recommendations from all my guests you can go to press1fornick.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Press One for Nick. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share. Until next time, focus on your customers. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.